Thank you all for coming uh, today to hear a, a panel on an extremely important topic. It, it doesn't get as much play as a lot of other issues in education, but uh, for-profit higher uh, education is a, an area of great innovation <coughs> and uh, a lot of advancements, and it, I think is important to the continuing uh, advantage we have in higher education in general uh, uh, globally. Uh, please excuse some of the lighting issues. It might not be apparent, but uh, we have construction going on, and that's caused some, some problems with dimming the lights. We should still be able to see the PowerPoint presentations, um, but please, uh, please forgive us if it's a, a little harder re to read than normal. It seems that everywhere you look, the government is getting more involved in, in our lives. Um, matters big and small, it seems you have to check on what the opinion of a, a bureaucrat uh, is uh, before you proceed. Um, whether it's how much salt in our food, whether we can fry chicken in a particular oil, or more important matters, do I have to have coverage for treatment of alcoholism in my health care policy? Um, in higher education, we f face more regulations regarding what kinds of schools and what kinds of delivery platforms the government uh, deems appropriate. Um, and as for health care regulations, what the government says matters greatly considering the weight of its financial involvement in the industry. For-profit higher education has come under increased scrutiny with critics claiming it's rife with bad, bad players who profit from predictable student failure. Others claim they are cost-effective, serve an important niche, and can even lead, lead the way out of our ever-increasing higher education costs. So what are the problems, and do the problems stem primarily from for-profit education institutions or with the government itself. Here to discuss this with us today is uh, a great panel. Uh, first, Dr. Robert, I'm sorry, Dr. Richard Surgeon is president and professor of government at Yorktown University, a for-profit online institute of higher learning. He's an entrepreneur and educator with a wide range of professional interests, including American government and constitutional law, ethics, and uh, the problems of secularization for uh, Western culture. He's a student of classical Greek philosophy and specializes in analysis of modern ideologies, 19th century philosophy, and political theory. And for nearly 25 years, he taught at universities and colleges in Indiana, Texas, and New York. A prolific author of academic works on political theory, Dr. Surgeon is currently writing an analysis of modern American politics titled The Fifth Paradigm versus the Administrative State and is working on a screenplay with the working title Coda, a story about national politics and presidential ambitions. He's been a member of the Philadelphia, Philadelphia Society since 1975 and serves as an editorial advisor and a frequent contributor to the quarterly journal founded by Russell Kirk, Modern Age. Dr. Robert Shapiro is chairman and co-founder of Sonicon LLC, an economic advisory firm that analyzes the interplay between economic conditions and government policies. He's also a senior fellow at Georgetown University School of Business, advisor to the International Monetary Fund, director of globaliza the Globalization Center at NDN, and chairman of the U.S. Climate Task Force. Dr. Shapiro has wide-ranging experience in political and policy organizations, serving as legislative director for uh, Senator Moynihan, a senior economic advisor to the Clinton, Gore, Kerry, and Obama campaigns, and as U.S. Undersecretary of Commerce for Economic Affairs in the Clinton administration. On the policy front, he was the co-founder and vice president of the Progressive Policy Institute 
and the Progressive Foundation, and a fellow of Harvard University, the Brookings Institution, and the National Bureau of Economic Research. His most recent book is Futurecast, How Superpowers, Populations, and Demographics Will Change the Way You Live and Work. Ben Miller is a policy analyst at the education sector with a focus on higher education issues related to student financial aid, the use of technology and innovation, improving graduation rates, and for-profit education. He has written about using technology to transform college courses, uh, the proposed gainful employment regulations, college dropout factories, NCAA athlete graduation rates, and student loan guarantee agencies. Before joining education sector, Miller was a program associate in the education policy program at the New America Foundation. And finally, we have our own Neil McCluskey, the associate director of Cato's Center for Educational Freedom. Neil has researched and written on a a range of topics, including school choice, the social conflicts that uh, our public schools uh, foster, higher education, and federal education policy. Um, Don't miss his book, Feds in the Classroom, is a great uh, primer on, on that issue. Neil holds a master's degree in political science from Rutgers University. And in addition to his research and writing, he has served in the U.S. Army, taught high school English, and was a freelance reporter covering municipal government and education in suburban New Jersey. With that, I'll turn it over to our panelists. We're hoping to have a a lot of time for a Q&A and a a lively discussion. I will uh, turn it over to Ben Miller. Actually, his presentation is loaded up here. So I I, I think instead of uh, fumbling around with that, and uh, and then follow with Dr. Sergian after. Thank you very much. All right, well, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm going to talk about the need for greater regulation of for-profit colleges. As I see it, there are basically three main reasons why we need greater regulation at for-profit colleges. Low completion rates, high debt, and questions about the quality of preparation. First, completion rates. As you can see on this chart, we kind of have a general problem nationally with graduation rates. And so while I do think it's worth noting that in a lot of cases we see that some for-profits have fairly low completion rates, it's not worth singling them out in particular because everyone kind of has this problem. Even our best sectors still have completion rates that are just above 60%. But debt's another issue. Uh, when, you look at, oh, this when you look at the student loan borrowing rate among sectors, students at for-profit colleges are far more likely to take on federal student loan debt than any other sector. And when they do borrow, they're likely to take on far, about as much debt as a four-year nonprofit college. So basically, you have students who are attending for-profit colleges, which tend to focus more on kind of shorter-term programs, things that are two years, but they're borrowing at about the rate of students going to the most expensive schools. It's basically the same thing as borrowing the cost of a Lexus to get a Ford Focus. You're getting a good car, but it's not a good value. And you can see this question of value when you look at the outcomes for students once they leave school. Students from for-profit colleges are far more likely to default on their student loans than any other sector. They repay their student loans at a substantially lower rate than any other sector. And because of this, they really take up a disproportionate share of defaulters. For-profit students are about 12% of all students in higher education. They're about 25% of all borrowers, but they're basically 44% of all defaulters. 
So if you think about that like a business, if you had a sector of your business that was 10 to 12% of your revenue and 44% of your losses, you would want to take a closer look at it because that's a problem. The, second, the other issue is that for a lot of students, that forward focus they're getting might be a lemon. And this is something where admittedly there isn't a lot of good sector-wide data, but we do have a lot of increasing report, anecdotal reports that really raise some questions about the quality of preparation that's going on at these schools. For example, we've heard stories about students who went to go get a licensure, uh, I'm sorry, who went to go get a degree in a program in radiology or something like that so they could be a licensed technician. They did all their work, they graduated, and then they found out they couldn't actually be a radiology technician because their program was not accredited and not licensed. So they worked hard and they sacrificed for something that is now effectively worthless. Then there were stories that we saw from the PBS Frontline documentary that laid out three students who were going for a clinical psychology program, and they basically were supposed to get some clinical experience and ended up going to visit a daycare center. Again, the promise doesn't match the reality. And then third, there were some concerns that were raised by the Government Accountability Office this summer that have been echoed by a number of other reports elsewhere about kind of misleading information coming in. Things about promising a six-figure salary for a cosmetology degree or guarantee of a job or not having to repay student loan rates. These are all things that are a really big concern. And so while it's not the issue that every single for-profit college has this problem, because that's certainly not the case, but when you start adding up all of these problems, all these concerns about completion, about debt, about quality, it really does start to present the picture of a sector that needs a closer look. But the other question is, who should take that look? Who should be doing the regulating? I mean, I think that the, the general consensus would probably be the market. You know, students can choose where they go to school, where to spend their dollars. If someplace is good, they can go there. If it's bad, they won't. Or investors can choose to support a good school or not support a bad one. But the problem is this doesn't really work because of the situation we have set up in higher education. For one, there's substantial amounts of federal student loan dollars available to students that can really make it seem like they're getting free money. Students who get a loan have to pay it back in the future, but if they're not thinking about that when they first enroll, there isn't as much sense of a personal sacrifice or a personal investment that makes them less likely to make good decisions. But even for a student who does want to make good decisions, there's a real paucity of information out there to help them make that choice. Graduation rates are done only at the institutional level, not by program. And for for-profits in particular, a lot of students aren't even counted in there. The placement rates and salary data aren't calculated the same at each school. So it might be that at one school is reporting a rate and another school is reporting a better rate, and they're not even calculated the same way. You can't compare them. You don't have the information for the market to function as a consumer. And at the same time, students have to negotiate this lack of information through an advertising and marketing scheme that's really designed to prey upon their emotions and insecurities. Uh, I thought this quote, which I saw in the Desert News the other day from a former recruiter at Everest College who's suing the school now, was pretty telling. He, he said, the tactics also included questions designed at putting down the prospective student, making them feel hopeless, bad about their current situation, and stuck at a dead end in order to make enrolling in school look like the best solution to the problem. So if the market can't Oh, I'm sorry. And then the other part is investors. One would think that they should be able to kind of act as a quality check to fund the good programs. But that doesn't work either because the concern about investors is about growth. It's about hitting enrollment targets. It's about getting as many students as you can. And I think what really illustrates this is what happened last month with the University of Phoenix. On October 14th, the Apollo Group, which is the, pres which is the parent company of the University of Phoenix, announced that it was going to have lower enrollment growth than it had in the past. But at the same time, it was going to have better... <coughs> 
were more likely to stay. <coughs> it was going to offer a new orientation program designed to keep students at school. It was going to try a new and very exciting sounding uh, support system based upon technology. And basically, it was going to do all the things that we would ask of any school, public, nonprofit, for profit, that wanted to boost its outcomes. And how did the market react? The stock price dro dropped over 26% in a single day. <coughs> the market doesn't care about quality. So we do have an existing regulatory structure in the form of accreditation agencies that are supposed to be sort of the gatekeepers to the federal student loan system. But they're not effective either. They're financially beholden to colleges. An accreditor's business requires accrediting colleges. If they get too strict, colleges will go elsewhere and they won't be able to do enough business. And so it's not worth them to take action when they identify serious problems. And I think what really illustrates this is what happened last year with the Higher Learning Commission where it reviewed American Intercontinental University and found, and this is a quote from them, egregious credit policies. And it said that their courses were inflated, they weren't worth the amount of credits they were saying, but despite finding all that, it didn't do anything. It basically said to American Intercontinental, take some months, come back and fix this, we'll check in later. It didn't do anything. I mean, students had been misled about how much their courses were worth, <coughs> whether or not they were getting value. And on top of all that, all the reports that creditors do are secret. You can't file a Freedom of Information Act request. You can't see them. They're not on a website. There's no way for the public to act as any sort of check on the accreditors to see if what they're doing is any good. So if the existing regulatory structure doesn't work and the market doesn't work, we're basically left with states and the federal government as the best choices to take a closer look and provide better regulation on for-profit colleges to fix some of these problems we identified. The federal government in particular is a good choice for this because it has a substantial financial stake in the sector. It provides, on average, about 71% of a school's revenue in the form of federal student loans, grants, and work study. I mean, last year alone, the federal government provided over $7 billion in the form of Pell Grants to for-profit colleges. As a taxpayer, I would expect that the federal government then take a good fiduciary responsibility to make sure that, that money is well spent and well used. In addition, the federal government has the scope and the ability to take a look at, at a large national chain, while states can also see what's in their borders and know what their needs are and take a closer look at more of the mom-and-pop trade schools. And then in addition, the states also have access to special databases about things like earnings and unemployment data and other things like that that make it easier to craft a good accountability system that looks at outcomes and really judges how schools are doing with their students. I just want to sort of end by talking a little bit about how we should regulate, because I think that that's an important part of this question. And the issue really needs to be about the problems that are identified, not the profits. I don't care how much a given school makes. I don't care who makes what. I don't care what the profit margin is. What I care about are the outcomes I see. And so when we talk about a regulatory system, we need to think about things that can identify what's causing those low graduation rates. How can we get them up? How can we get students to repay their loans? How can they avoid debt? I mean, frankly, if we want to talk about profit, if anyone could crack the issue of remediation for low-income students in this country, they're worth their weight in gold, and they should be paid whatever it takes to do it because it's such a big issue. Second, we need to focus on consumers. There's not enough information in the market right now to let people make good decisions, and so the market doesn't function. There needs to be better information out there that can help someone make a better decision to really pick that good school and identify it. But at the same time, we also need to step in where there are cases of schools that are really so poor that they can't, they really just shouldn't be offered. And part of that means setting strict outcome goals. Look at how students are doing. Look at the set strict requirements for graduation rates. Define what quality looks like. But don't 
don't do this by defining credit hours or things like that. Leave schools the flexibility to do interesting things. That's the real value of the for-profit education sector is its willingness to use technology to be innovative, to be creative, to find new offerings when they're in demand, things like that. If you focus on the outcomes and how students do rather than how you get students to that point, you'll still leave room for that creativity. And then finally, any accountability system must have teeth. If you want it to change anyone's behavior, to help consumers, to make things actually different, there need to be actual consequences and actual losers. If we introduce a regulatory requirement that has no consequences, all you've done is added more paperwork, more of a burden, and left everyone worse off. And so in closing, I just want to say that you know, it's very clear that the for-profit sector has the capacity to do a lot of good in higher education, and it has. It's been a real mover in using technology in the classroom at trying to find ways to fit a busy student's schedule and things like that. But that doesn't absolve the real questions that are present about quality, cost, value, and completion. And a good accountability system will leave room for that flexibility to be creative while also addressing those concerns, with the goal at the end being the best high-quality, high-value education system for students. Up and down. I need someone who's 12 years old, please. Ah, good. Let me just uh, thank you very much for being here today. I noticed one of my friends many years ago sitting in the audience, unless you've changed. <laughs> um, Yorktown University is a for-profit university. It was founded in 2000. Um, I chose it, uh, chose it to be a for-profit institution because I felt that the the um, 501c3 foundation world, not-for-profit organization world, was crowded with people all going after the same sources for, for funds, and that uh, if you had a good idea, perhaps you could get people to invest in your company, and I wouldn't be competing with the Cato Institute or Heritage or the other organizations that are glomming, accumulating all this dough. Uh, but also, we wanted to use the Internet um, because it's inexpensive, because the technologies are there off the shelf. We didn't have to create anything. Uh, by 2000, just about everything we needed uh, was available. We have a course delivery system that costs $500 a month. We had uh, faculty willing to create courses for us for, uh, in exchange for stock. Uh, we had willing investors. Uh, it, everything was right. What I miss, did not quite understand was that there is something called accreditation. <laughs> <laughs> and the system of accreditation is designed to protect bricks and mortar institutions that have invested in bricks and mortar. Uh, and they uh, do not want uh, new entrants into the, into the education marketplace to compete with them and to take away their students. Uh, for example, in, on 16th Street uh, Northwest, uh, in the old uh, Russian embassy, there's a boutique graduate school of national security. It's a superb institution called the Institute of World Politics. It took them 15 years to become accredited. 
It took us uh, eight years to become accredited. We would have been accredited two years earlier. But the Bush administration politicized higher education by not renewing the charter of the accrediting association that we wanted to be accredited by the American Academy for Liberal Education. You may have heard that this week the American Academy for Liberal Education will probably be forced to close because its charter will be revoked. Um, uh, so no matter what you do, it uh, becomes uh, a game uh, of, uh, of overcoming barriers. That's the whole business of, of uh, trying to gain entry into the education marketplace as a for-profit institution. Uh, it was, we thought we would be uh, regionally accredited by now, uh, but uh, some bad things began to happen. Uh, apparently, the members of the Obama administration learned from the Bush administration that if you threaten an accrediting association with loss of its charter, you can get anything that you want. And in uh, December of last year and May of this year, the Department of Education, in fact, as an inspector general of the Department of Education, sent an alert to the North Central Association of Colleges and Schools telling them that they would lose their charter if they didn't uh, make certain corrections. When I went to a meeting of the North Central Association in April of this year, I was told they were never going to accredit another internet institution and they would never allow the transfer of ownership of a, for of a not-for-profit failing institution to a for-profit company. Um, why is that happening and what is, uh, what is the motivation of the Obama administration? Because I think that we would agree with a previous speaker that Higher education needs to take, we have to take a closer look at higher education, <clears throat> but uh, this administration wants to kill one sector of the higher education system in the United States, that is the for-profit sector. And I, the reason I think that's what they're trying to do is because they're not willing to reform or are seeking to reform higher education. What they really want to do is to get away from education where there's a place for institutions that make a profit on education. Uh, on October 10th, the Obama, President Obama touted a new effort to aid community colleges. He did that at uh, Macomb Community College in Michigan, um, where he called for increasing uh, the number of college graduates by five million in, uh, in was it 10 years, uh, largely by supporting two-year institutions. Um, Arnie Duncan, uh, the Secretary of Education at American Enterprise Institute on November 17th in a speech titled Bang for the Buck in Schooling uh, made an observation that technology can play a huge role in increasing educational productivity, but not just an add-on for high-tech reproduction of current practice. We need to change the underlying processes to leverage the capabilities of technology. It's a very smart observation because the Internet dis uh, distribution of, of higher education products, if you want to call it that, or courses, is not parallel to what goes on in the classroom. It is a different modality. It uses different instruments. It, it, it appeals even to a different market, and its purpose is to achieve a, a, a goal that is not the exact equivalent. In my own view, it is better to be in a, for, in a traditional classroom with a teacher over a period of number of years and the like, if you can afford it. But this, but the internet is an is a is a an opportunity to offer an equivalent education in a different modality to those who can't afford to go to uh, colleges that cost as much as they do today. 
Robert Charman gave a speech uh, to the National Association of State Administrators and Supervisors of Private Schools, <clears throat> which ta- told me that the administration really wasn't attempting to uh, to reform higher education by correcting the the evils of for-profit education, but rather they wanted to destroy it. To these administrators, he said, uh, uh, do you have the analytical firepower you need to assess what is going on with the entities you regulate? Uh, the system of academic <coughs> accreditation is fraught with conflicts of interest, and federal and state governments cannot rely on accreditation to assure that consumers and taxpayers are protected. The solution is to utilize a triad of regulation that includes the states, the accrediting associations, and the federal government. Now, prior to October 29th of this year, if we are domiciled in Colorado, which where we are, we only need to receive a license in uh, the state of Colorado. After the Department of Education carried out Charman's dictates, it is now necessary for us to attain a license in every state where we have a student if the state requires that. And the regulations that were posted on October 29 compel the states to get into the accreditation business and to force us to, um, to comply with those regulations. We left uh, Yorktown, uh, rather uh, Virginia, near Yorktown, because of the regulations in Virginia, and moved to Colorado which allows a free market in educational institutions, even, even startup institutions without accreditation. <clears throat> With this new regulation, we will now be bound to be licensed by the same state that we, from which we fled if we have students in the state of, <coughs> of Virginia. And it also applies to religious colleges, subjecting them to the scrutiny of states who may not be uh, supportive of the religious mission of those colleges. So let's put all this together. The Obama administration wants to uh, expand the opportunities of, of students to attend at least community colleges, but the community colleges are already grow, uh, burgeon, bulging at the seams. In Colorado last week, <clears throat> the Denver Post observed that last year, Colorado community colleges increased uh, their enrollments by 28%. There is no amount of money that will increase the ability of the community college system as it currently exists to absorb these students. Uh, Neil McCluskey observes the high cost of uh, college education today between 1987 and 88. In 2007 and 2008, he said the cost at a 4-year public institution rose 78%. Here's a chart from the uh, College of Affordability and Productivity that shows the growth of tuition, room and board at public institutions and private institutions. The average cost at a public and private institution is thirty-three or $33,400. And at a state university, it's $14,000. <clears> a good research institution like Penn State or the University of Colorado Boulder charges twenty-two and 23000 So what we have is a system where the what we, what we need is for new uh, uh, entities to come in to challenge the system, to take away students from the traditional colleges that aren't doing a good job or are charging too much. And those people who are doing that are the for-profit sector. But the rules and regulations that have been imposed and which are coming down the pike will kill them. Now, you have to ask yourself, why are they doing that? 
And the answer is they want to control higher education. If you want to control civilization, control the educational system. Uh, good afternoon. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm an economist, and so unsurprisingly, I find myself not fully agreeing with either of the first two uh, speakers. <clears throat> I approach this as an economist. Um, and so I begin by noticing that in recent years, demand for post-secondary education has risen very sharply. From 1995 uh, to 2008, the number of students enrolled at American public and private colleges, universities, and institutes went from 14.3 million to 19.6 million. That's a 37% increase in just 15 years. That should be unsurprising to us because for more than a generation, the economy has been shifting towards what is popularly called an idea or knowledge-based economy. And the, and, and the wages and salary, and wages and salaries have risen steadily for those with the education and skills to participate in that part of the economy by developing new ideas or at least by operating efficiently in workplaces dominated by the technologies that organize, analyze, and transmit ideas. Now, this idea-based economy isn't a metaphor. It's something that economists can describe and measure with some precision. Uh, we know from BEA and Federal Reserve data, for example, that since the mid-1990s, for the first time on record, American businesses have been investing more each year in intangibles, that's R&D, patents and copyrights, databases, worker training, reorganization, and so on, than they have in physical assets. Here's more data. In 1984, the book value of the 150 largest U.S. corporations, that's what their physical assets could be sold for on the open market, was equal to 75% of their market cap. About one quarter of the value of American businesses then lay in their intangible assets. By 2005, the book value of the 150 largest U.S. companies was equal to 36% of their market cap. Two-thirds of the value of U.S. companies lay in intangible assets. We also, over this period, had a president who understood that this transformation was taking place and believed with some conviction that all of us would have to upgrade our knowledge and skills um, on a regular basis if America was to compete successfully in the emerging global economy. Uh, Bill Clinton made that a theme of his presidency, and millions of young people got the message both from him and from the economy itself. So our market-based economy and culture responded with a market-based solution by vastly expanding private for-profit institutions of higher education. From 1995 to 2008, the student bodies of private for-profit institutions increased from 240,000 to 1.8 million. That's an increase of 750%. It's unsurprising as well that this expansion has triggered some blowback since private for-profit institutions compete for students uh, with traditional private not-for-profits and public institutions. So we've heard from some quarters that for-profits receive a disproportionate share of federal assistance and, 
and that new rules should be crafted that effectively would restrict that access. So with a colleague, Dr. Nam Pham, we undertook a study of just how much support government provides to the three major types of institutions, private for-profits, public institutions, and private not-for-profits, and disaggregating this to four-year institutions, two-year institutions, and less than two-year institutions, um, and the results for students. All the data came directly from the National Center for Education Statistics, and it showed that private for-profits actually received much less taxpayer support per, per student than private uh, not-for-profits or public institutions. They also provide greater access to higher education for students from low-income and minority backgrounds, and sometimes, often enough, produce better results. The share of post-secondary students attending private for-profits rose from less than 2% to nearly 10% in just over a decade because those institutions had some powerful advantages. To begin, they can finance their expansion through capital markets, a more secure channel than appealing to governments and alumni as public and private not-for-profit institutions have to do. Further, new rules from the Department of Education in 1994 required more strict accreditation of institutions accepting students with federal loans and grants, and many private for-profits responded by upgrading their facilities, faculties, and course offerings. As young upstarts, many private for-profit institutions also were faster to adopt new cost-effective technologies, especially online learning, to scale up their enterprises. Perhaps most important, private for-profit institutions moved to meet the burgeoning demand for higher education by emphasizing career-track programs to prepare students for jobs in particular fields rather than a more traditional liberal arts education. That's very appealing in uncertain economic times. The data also show that private for-profit colleges and universities have especially attracted those who historically have had less access to traditional institutions, enrolling disproportionate numbers of students from low-income and minority families. Looking across all four-year institutions, we find that lower-income students make up nearly two-thirds of those attending private for-profit colleges colleges and universities, that's the four-year ones, which is the majority of the for-profit sector, compared to just over one-third of those at public and private not-for-profit institutions. Minorities also comprise more than half of the student bodies at private for-profits compared to one-third at private not-for-profits and public institutions. This focus on those with traditionally less access to higher education in many cases appears to be quite successful. Studies have found that the graduation rates for four-year institutions with predominantly lower-income students, that is, four-year institutions in which lower-income students comprise more than half of the student body, are 55% for private for-profits compared to 39% for private not-for-profits and 31% for publics, public institutions. Similarly, across four-year institutions with uh, predominantly minority student bodies, 
that is student bodies of more than 50% minorities. Graduation rates are 47% at the private for-profits compared to 40% at their private not-for-profit counterparts and 33% for public institutions. To be sure, and the contrast to this data and our earlier speaker, the results depend on the subset you focus on, what cross-tabs you use as economists approach it. Um, and minority and lower-income students at private for-profits that don't have predominantly minority or lower-income student bodies graduate at about the same rate um, as comparable students or lower in some cases at private not-for-profits or public institutions. And for two-year institutions, the graduation rates at, um, uh, for minority and lower-income students um, are lower at for-profits than at not-for-profits, though higher than at public institutions. Um, regulations, incidentally, this is just a side comment, regulations that would um, uh, restrict access to government funds based on completion rates would decimate the public community college system, uh, who have by far the lowest graduation rates. Um, the current political fight, however, is not really over results. It's over access to money. It's no coincidence that these criticisms have escalated recently when tight government budgets are squeezing many public institutions and a weak economy puts new pressure on the endowments and gift-giving for private not-for-profits. Once again, here's what the National Center for Education Statistics reports. All three types of institutions get both direct support through government appropriations, grants, and contracts, as well as indirect support through government student loans and grants. But across all four-year institutions, private for-profits and their students receive an average of $2,400 per student in all forms of government support, direct and indirect, compared to over $7,000 per student for the private not-for-profits and more than $15,500 for public institutions. That's per student. The same pattern holds across two-year institutions, although the differences are smaller. The biggest difference involves direct support through government appropriations, grants, and contracts. Looking again at four-year colleges and universities, private for-profits actually pay more in taxes than they receive in that direct support. Uh, the government actually, in terms of direct support, uh, comes out ahead. Um, by contrast, four-year private not-for-profit colleges and universities receive an average of $4,765 per student in net direct support, net of the taxes they pay, and public institutions collect $13,240 per student in direct support. Government is more even-handed in its indirect support through student loans and grants. Students at four-year private for-profits receive an average of $2,415 in loans and grants from all levels of government, that's federal, state, and local governments, compared to $2,300 per student for those attending four-year public or private not-for-profit institutions. Students at private for-profits, however, do receive larger federal grants and loans on average than other students, but much smaller uh, loans and grants from state and local governments. 
Um, you can only make the case of a disproportionate support for uh, students at for, at for-profit institutions if you look at only one level of government. If you look at all levels of government, um, the totals are very are essentially comparable. These differences, the fact that there's more support for for-profits at the federal level. Um, largely reflect the historic mission of federal student and loan and grant programs to help low-income students who predominate at many private for-profits. It's also true, it's correct, that students from private for-profits are more likely to default on their student loans. That's also not unexpected if you're an economist, since students from low-income families have fewer family resources to help them help, help pay off those loans, especially at first. Uh, now, no one, I don't blame traditional private and public institutions for trying to claim as much support as possible from taxpayers. But on a strict per-student basis, after all, I am a Democrat, so. so. Uh, but on a strict per-student basis, private for-profit institutions already receive only a small share of what other institutions receive from government. And in less than a generation, the private for-profits have created a new path for economic opportunity for millions of young people with traditionally limited access to higher education. Um, and at a time when what we know determines both what we earn and how effectively we compete in global markets, I think we can ill afford to shortchange the fastest growing segment of American higher education. Thank you. Uh, I'd like to first thank everyone for coming out today and, of course, for all our panelists. I also want to note that uh, when we were putting this panel together, I tried to get some of the most vociferous critics of for-profit schooling to join us today, um, but most were either unable or maybe unwilling, I don't know, to come. And uh, Ben has sort of been standing in very ably for them, uh, but I'm not sure how great his distaste is for for-profit schools. Uh, so... In order to make sure there's enough rancor here at the panel to keep this exciting, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say things that are at least one thing that's inflammatory to, I think, probably everyone here, and say a pox on all your ivory towers. Um, before I get into that, I should say that I do think that the current assault on for-profit schools, uh, it strikes me as being pretty, very much ideologically and politically driven. I don't think it's driven by trying to come up with the best educational policy. I have a few theories why this is. Certainly none of them are ironclad. The first is that perhaps it's been a part of the Obama administration's general sort of Wall Street demonization strategy, which he used uh, pretty significantly up to the midterm uh, elections, uh, to try and shift the blame from what might be government-caused problems, or at least problems the government has a big hand in, to say this was out-of-control capitalists, which is, in a way, what the story being told is about for-profit schools. It could also be an expression of general hostility toward anything done outwardly and openly for profit, which is especially in an area like education considered sort of anathema because we're supposed to be going after what's the common good and we think inherently opposed to the common good is people trying to make money for themselves. Um, it might also, though, be perhaps in sort of the soft underbelly of going after the massive excess that we find throughout higher education, which is what I'm going to talk about, um, 
the problem is that traditional colleges and universities, or at least the potential problem, tend to be very much dominated by liberals. And it's very difficult, I think, especially for a democratically controlled Congress and an administration to attack so much of the waste in higher ed by going after those schools. Much easier is to go after for-profit schools, which many of those same people might find distasteful. All of these are theories. I don't know that they're true. But uh, I think we do have some evidence that this is politically driven, not driven by the best interests of education. Um, and it's the embrace of sort of traditional schools, and particularly community colleges, that, that I think really fleshes this out. So it's absolutely true, and I won't go over all the data that's already been, been discussed at length here, but four-year public and nonprofit private schools certainly have, I think, better overall performance statistics, at least generally, than for-profit schools. But these schools are hardly exemplary. Uh, so... If you look at just the basic data, and of course, as we discussed, you've got to get really into the weeds on the data to know what exactly what it says. But if you look at the basic data that the federal government puts out, bachelor's degree seekers at for-profit schools, they only have about 22% six-year graduation rate, so 150% of the time it was supposed to take them to complete the program. But public colleges and universities only have a 55% six-year graduation rate, and nonprofit private schools only a 65% six-year graduation rate. So obviously there is a great deal of waste throughout higher education. Lots of people spending a lot of money on programs that they're not completing. If you then go down to the two-year level, this is even more stark, an illustration of why it seems for-profits may be unfairly um, singled out. For-profits at two-year institutions have a 60% three-year completion rate, again, 150% of the time it's supposed to take to finish one of these programs, versus 51% for private nonprofits and only 22% for public schools, for public colleges and universities at the two-year level. So clearly, at least using this data, for-profit schools are probably doing better than the other schools, but they all have terrible uh, outcomes, but it's impossible to look at this and say, well, clearly for-profits are the worst performers when this data shows that two-year public colleges only have a 22% completion rate. But of course, as Ben has rightly noted here and has done before, these numbers miss a lot of, of you know, information that you need to get at, transfers, uh, what kind of program people are in, lots of these things that could change the outcomes. However, on the Ed Sector blog recently, uh, Ben did a breakdown of, of these figures. And using the rosiest, I think, outcomes for community colleges, he still finds that the success rate, when you consider people who have either completed or are trying to transfer, is only about 40% at community colleges. And I think it's somewhat higher for for-profits. But the point is, 40% is a very low completion rate. Despite this... President Obama recently waxed poetic that community colleges are, and I quote, the unsung heroes of America's education system. Now, you can debate how you split the data, but you can't look at this number, these numbers, these very low completion rates of community colleges and all colleges, but especially community colleges, and say, these are unsung heroes. This is what speaks to the politics, not that we're after the best education policy. Uh, I should say there's also been a spate of recent reports that I think have also demonstrated a pretty clear bias against for-profit schools. 
The American Association of Community Colleges put out a report a few weeks ago ostensibly to differentiate between community colleges and for-profit schools. The argument was that we're just going to tell you what the difference is in our mission and some other things. And they said this is not, and I quote, not to win a debate or suggest public policy. So it seemed pretty straightforward, but the authors immediately and throughout the report offered myriad pointed critiques of for-profit schools and suggested that for-profit schools were stealing a a page from Clausewitz by asserting that they are actually not worse than community colleges. That's pretty loaded to say that they're stealing a page from a ruthless general that we all know from his ruthlessness. Um, The Education Trust uh, last week released a report that started off with the very contestable assertion that Wall Street caused the Great Recession, that government's primary and probably only culpability for this was failing to regulate the capitalists sufficiently, and that that is being repeated in for-profit higher education, that nonprofit schools cost taxpayers, as Robert Shapiro has shown, huge amounts, more, arguably, than traditional higher ed than for-profit schools was naturally ignored. The cost to the taxpayer wasn't even part of this discussion. Moreover, there was no mention when you talk about the Great Recession of the role of government. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the Community Reinvestment Act. No talk of those entities and their role in the recession. And as we'll see, no discussion of the potential role or the possible role of government in the problems that we're seeing are rampant in higher education. Finally, much hay was made of the GAO report, which was mentioned briefly earlier, uh, in which the secret shoppers went to um, uh, a selection of for-profit schools, and they found some questionable practices at most of these schools. Now, the point is that these were selected schools, and in the report it says they are non-representative. That's a quote. Unfortunately, that non-representative part didn't make its way into most of the media coverage or especially, for instance, Senator Tom Harkin, who has been the big driver in Congress of the assault on for-profits, in his discussion. For the most part, this study has been used to say problems are rampant in for-profit schooling when the study itself says this is a non-representative sample. Um, So I think for-profits right now are are quite simply correct that they are the targets of an ideologically and politically driven attack. I think if we look at the facts and we look at the rhetoric, it's impossible to conclude otherwise. But like I said, a pox on all your ivory towers. All of higher education is awash in waste and excess, something which I think has already been very powerfully illustrated by the very low completion rates of programs at all levels of higher ed. Uh, and then there's the, the really maybe the most visible problem in higher education, which is rampant tuition inflation. According to the College Board, between 1986 and 87, the 1986-87 school year, sorry, and the 2009-10 academic year, inflation-adjusted costs of tuition fees, room and board, grew 128% at public two-year schools, 96% at public four-year schools, and 98% at private four-year schools. So almost a doubling or more in every sector on a real basis. That is huge inflation. At the same time, the College Board doesn't have this data for for for-profits, but as we discussed earlier, in that last 15 years or so, we've seen just a huge explosion in the use of for-profit schools. Now, many people will say, well, the reason that we see this rampant inflation is not because 
we have too much government involvement. In fact, they say that what happens is states and local governments have become ever more tight-fisted. And so public colleges and universities have had to raise tuition to make up for lost revenue. Well, this does not explain tuition inflation. For one thing, it doesn't include private schools, which get relatively small amounts of their money from state and local governments. Um, Second, if you look at data from the state higher education executive officers who do a 25-year breakdown of per-pupil expenditures from state and local sources and per-pupil revenue from tuition, you'll see that the state and local revenue on a real basis is pretty much flat. It goes up and down with the business cycle, but overall trend is flat. Meanwhile, the amount that comes in per pupil through tuition constantly goes up. So whether it's uh, good times or bad, happy or sad for government, they are going to raise tuition. So what's the cause of this? Well, I would argue that it is government. It is government pushing people to college just like they pushed people to housing to lead to the Great Recession or certainly contributed to it. And in higher ed, they do this by word. President Obama's plan to lead the world in the percentage of the population with a college degree by 2020 and by deed. And the most important deed is student aid. If you look at the student aid data, student aid comes from lots of sources, but the biggest student aid source of all is the federal government. And in that time, or in roughly the same time as those tuition inflation uh, figures I gave you, we've had huge overall growth in aid per pupil. Uh, between the 1986-87 school year and 2009-2010, we've seen a 200% aid increase in real dollars. Now, that's about equally split between loans, which, of course, a student, in theory, has to pay back, although there's been lots of loan forgiveness programs and things like that, and grant. But about an equal split, and both have risen at roughly the same rate. So it's not that all of this has been put into loans instead of grants and that the public will be getting all their money back eventually. Uh, The research on the inflationary effect of aid on prices is in dispute, but a great deal of it shows clearly an inflationary effect of aid. The more aid students bring into a college, the higher the colleges raise their tuition prices. Um, And much that disagrees with this tends to look at very short time frames, so seven years or so, which might only catch one business cycle or one even part of a business cycle. And they say that, well, We're only going to look at public schools and say, clearly, the biggest factor is tight-fisted government. But you have to look at the overall trend, not just at one business cycle, to see what happens. Um, And beyond the research, I would say simple rationality says colleges will raise prices to capture aid per pupil because they can. And there's something called Bowen's Law, which I will, from Howard Bowen, who's the president of several universities, and I'll just paraphrase, but he said something along the lines of, Colleges will raise every dollar they can and spend every dollar they raise. So they're like everyone. They want to maximize how much they get, and they'll do it by raising tuition if they can. Uh, And the only difference, I think, between the sectors in how that money is used is that for-profits often, of course, use it to reward investors, whereas not-for-profits, you often see them plowing it back into the institution, but often to make workloads easier, bring in more administrators, build nicer buildings. You know, the, the stereotypical biggest climbing wall in the world has to be at a university, or the biggest jacuzzi, brand new buildings that are underutilized. There's a whole talk about this arms race and installations. Um, and what's the justification for this? Well, we, we've talked about this. That it's the idea is, well, we need to supply more and more money, in particular so that the underserved can access education. 
generally by underserved, there are lots of definitions, but it seems one of them at least is to enable people to go to college who haven't been able to get in, in many cases, to a, a, an older, you know, harder school to get in or something like that. And unfortunately, this seems to be the rally cry generally of for-profits. They say they're serving the underserved disproportionately, and using that, I think, often as an argument to say, so completion rates should be ignored. The fact that we have very low completion rates is something you should accept because we're bringing in lots of people that other colleges wouldn't. But when huge numbers of students will not finish their programs, which we know is the case throughout higher ed, so not just for-profits, but community colleges, not-for-profit private schools across higher ed, when huge numbers of students won't finish their programs or will finish them while learning very little, that neither truly serves the underserved nor the forgotten victims, I think, in all of this, which is the taxpayers who shell out roughly $100 billion a year annually to subsidize students and schools and research and other things in higher ed, uh, and all the taxpayers paying for all, all these groups to maximize their best interest, to maximize their utility, not for the taxpayers, but so students and schools and people who work at schools can all bring the greatest happiness and utility to themselves. And so I say once again, a pox on all your ivory towers, and I offer this cure, which I assume will not be agreed upon by everyone, but government must begin to get out of the business of subsidizing higher education to return rationality to the ivory tower. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. I thought I'd uh, take, take a shot at the, the first question. Thought Neil's closing uh, deserved a response, um, especially from Ben and Robert. Uh, I was curious to see what you thought about the cutting aid and subsidy as a, a solution to a lot of the the, the, the parent problems in this area. You want to go first? Uh, uh, sure. Do I need to press anything? Or is this I think you can just go right. Sorry, I mean, <clears throat> I think part of it depends on how you view higher education. If you view higher education as providing externalities that aren't captured by the general price, then it makes sense to subsidize it. If you think that higher education produces better citizens, produces better educated people, people who be more productive members of society have better jobs, then it absolutely does make sense to subsidize it. Um, I mean, I think you can make an argument that in the current tighter climate where every dollar is more precious, that it might make sense to spend the dollars more wisely and use them in a more productive manner and attach more strength to them that encourage that. But I think that if you were just to do away with all subsidies for higher education, you would see the price skyrocket at pretty much every place to the point where it's unaffordable except for only the wealthiest, and we'd basically return to where we were kind of around the, the turn of the past century where you'd only had the very, very wealthy going to college and there was sort of no room for any of the lower-income people to go, and that would really kill kind of any economic mobility we have in this country. Um. You know, it's always interesting to come to an institution which is not in your normal circle. Um, because and in Washington, we're all very insulated. We spend most of our time with people who already agree with us. Um, and we need to do more of this. Um, I can't imagine disagreeing more. Um, the um, uh, education is a classic example of a market failure. 
um, which economists have reckoned, including Mr. Hayek, who's in whose uh, auditorium we apparently sit, um, that um, basic R&D, basic infrastructure, and education are classic market failures and in which the, the only a public support can produce an efficient outcome. That is, sufficient resources to maximize the efficiency of the entire economy. Um, in my view, I mean, I... Uh, I also happen to believe in the kind of civilizing function of higher education as well, that it introduces people to worldwide and U.S. culture, um, and that that makes us better people. Um, so on non-economic grounds as well, I mean, if I were going to move in any direction, um, I would move in the, exactly the opposite direction. I would move more in the European direction uh, with much broader subsidies. Um, and much greater access, that is, take money out of, the, out of the calculus of whether a young person has access to higher education or not. Can I, can I give a quick, I'll just go point by point. Um, I would say, first of all, when we talk about the externalities, we, have to, we, we often say, well, there are these externalities which we will certainly never capture. But the first thing we have to say is many people will pursue higher ed through self-interest and will get those other qualities anyway. So we're already taking some of those externalities. I would say most of the externalities by people who are self-interested will get those benefits along with the things that they want to get from higher ed. So I, I always find that argument somewhat questionable. Certainly, it's, it's the, the norm and the thinking. Um, I think the bigger problem, though, perhaps, is we often talk about, like I said, the common good for why we should subsidize education. And the problem is you can just say common good without ever putting a dollar figure on it, but at some point you have to say how much is the common good worth. And how do you do that? And often the way that's done is whichever group is going to benefit financially from saying they supply the common good, they go and they lobby and they spend a lot of time in politics, and then it becomes the private good for them. So we have to see how pursuit of the common good can so often be corrupted at the very least. I would also say that I don't think it's the case that if you got rid of aid, that prices would go up, first of all. I think clearly prices go up because the aid is there, which enables people, including the wealthy, because lots of this aid is not targeted at low-income people, it enables them to pay more and more. And I think you can't look historically and say 100 years ago the rich were primarily the ones who used higher education, and therefore that's what we'd see if we eliminated aid, because back then it didn't make sense for most people to go to college, because there weren't jobs for people with college. And so we have to look at, well, what are the incentives now? The incentives now are, yes, there's an incentive to go to college, and people will consume it and People will provide it because they know they have a market out there. And as we see with so many other things, they become reasonably priced. You're not going to keep the same prices we have now because almost no one would pay for it without aid. And I think you'd see schools had to become more efficient. Um, and they can become, we, I think it's, many people agree, study higher ed, that schools can become a lot more efficient in the way they utilize buildings and in, in the programs that they pursue, the programs they subsidize, and on and on and on. And I would say it's not a case of classic market failure, even if Hayek said that, and I'm sorry, Hayek, if you did, um, and I disagreed because you know more than I do, but uh, Milton Friedman 
eventually, as he looked at K-12 education, disagreed that you would have to have government um, supplying education and that people wouldn't supply it on their own because he studied the history of education and found that people were consuming education before it was heavily subsidized. And then in terms of the efficiency, I mean, that's, that's ultimately the whole point, is the way to make this efficient is clearly not what we're doing now, because I think we've all used data that shows it's massively inefficient. And it's massively inefficient because people are generally using someone else's money to consume it. My name is Volker Bly. I'm uh, Chancellor of the University of Applied Sciences in Germany in Potsdam. And um, I, I have a feeling I'm the cage of the lions here. Um, and I would like to give a little outside view. Um, looking from the outside, I think the discussion here is quite partisan. Um, I thought, coming here to the Cato Institute, that the discussion would be about what education system in higher education as a superpower the United States needs. And um, I thought of, think of, find me in a discussion where you're tangled up in 51 states and I think four or five different higher education systems. Private, public, for profit, not for profit. Um, so, um, excuse me, but what I'm missing is the differentiation between knowledge production and teaching. Nobody said a word about academic freedom and the necessity of a well-defining segment of the American institutions um, being, being independent. And um, I wonder um, why... Not a, look, a little closer look is done what the transition of credits from one state to another, the European ECTS system, for instance, could do good in the United States to enable you to um, get beyond the discussion you're just having. I'm not saying that money doesn't matter. I'm a f vice president for financial affairs. I know what I'm talking about. But... Um, it's just, I think this discussion shows you're tangled up in your partisan positions and you should watch out that you sort of do not damage the American higher education system in the worldwide competition when you continue this. Thank you. I think uh, Dr. Bersergian, uh, if you want to answer that, uh, some of the issues I think... Uh, involving accreditation and credits, I, I know, are a particular concern and interest of yours. Well, that's a, that's a, you know, you've raised a lot of important issues. And uh, there's a place, of course, for uh, the highest level of, uh, of research. We have them at our research universities. Uh, but this is a country of 330 million people, which has a commitment to the education of everyone who aspires to it. Um, we don't limit that. Um, in fact, the very numerous barriers that may have existed previously in various tests and the like have been thrown aside and, and people are given an opportunity to, um, to do well. 
I mean, look at me. I, I basically, uh, I was warehoused in public high schools in Pennsylvania. I went to university and did uh, quite poorly. There's a gentleman in the room here who can attest to that. He got an A in biology, and I got an F or a D or something like that. Um, but uh, I, uh, I had an opportunity to pursue a dream, which was to uh, study political philosophy, and, uh, and I'm very good at that. Um, not quite sure why I'm in this business, <laughs> business as a result, but um, uh, so I wouldn't want to give up that freedom that we have to to excel or fail. And um, uh, the European system has its advantages, of course, and it's excellent. I mean, um, Michael Polanyi argues that if it weren't for Europe and the transfer of scientific knowledge to the United States, we would not be as advanced in science were it not for European scholarship. So true education originated in, in Europe, and to the extent we can emulate it, um, we will be ahead of the game. Uh, but again, uh, this is a market. There are competing institutions. There is no one person to decide what kind of system we should have. It's a free market. Um, we have a very good institution. There are some that aren't very good uh, in all, all kinds, public, private, not-for-profit. And it's just one of those things we put up with in freedom. Uh, with, as a result of freedom, there is waste. Uh, uh, on the other hand, uh, we have an extraordinary burst of talent that, uh, that amazes us all the time. Annie Hughes, um, wealth manager and certified financial planner. Um, do, your data ends at 2008, and it's been a bad job market. Do you think that the numbers will continue to go up? Um, In terms of the default rates? Yeah. Yes. I mean, the, they, there is one more recent cohort of student loan default rates where the overall number was, I think, 7%. I forget what the, they were by sector. The reason why I use that year is because a lot of schools know, a lot of schools actively manage their default rate. Basically, like, you can avoid default but not actually be repaying. That's why those repayment rates are much lower. Mm -hmm. And so last year, the department released for the first time default rates that took a longer look. And because that was unexpected, that gives you a truer picture of what it actually looks like because they weren't moving to manipulate that one as much. So I didn't have the three-year figures for the most recent cohort, which is why I used the two-year ones there. Okay. Um, so they are, yes, they are moving up, not astronomically so. I think it went from 6.7 to 7.0 overall. And does the panel agree that, because um, this is what I see with client families, that there's a bit of a disconnect between the understanding of what an education will produce and the students that end up with an education? Uh, earlier today, I was at a different meeting in town, and they threw out, Nifi threw out a statistic of some 40% of graduates not working in a uh, job that requires a degree. Do you believe that there's a disconnect in that understanding of the consumer versus what they're going to end up with? Well, I'll just start by saying probably in some cases there's a dis disconnect, but I also think a lot of people go to college and they're not, at least as undergrads, they're not interested in pursuing studies that have an immediate um, application to a career. So, But I don't know what the breakdown is between how many people are doing it on purpose and how many people think being an art history major will make them a banker or something. Right. I think you'd have to distinguish between um, those students who pursue a particular course and then decide that that's not the course they want to pursue, which is, you know, life is full of surprises. 
um, and those who pursue a particular course and find they're unable to practice in that profession. Um, that's an economic phenomenon. Um, and we would expect over time that to kind of even out because people get messages about what areas are hiring and have a real, have a real future and what areas don't. Um, but uh, those, singles, those signals are scrambled in uh, when the economic cycle shifts sharply, and that's where we are. My name is Mary Gottschall with the Association of Private Sector Colleges and Universities. And um, there were two points I wanted to raise for the panelists. One is the expansion of private sector colleges and universities internationally. We've seen uh, examples of some of our members' schools going into Brazil, India, China, Europe, etc. I wondered if some of the panelists might be interested in commenting on that phenomenon. And then also the extent to which we see some traditional universities collaborating in significant ways with career colleges. For example, Kaplan is advising uh, George Mason University about online learning, not only from a technological standpoint, but from a pedagogical standpoint. And I wondered if the panelists think we're going to see more of that type of collaboration going on so that instead of the sort of traditional universities and the for-profit universities being pitted against one another as sort of enemies, they may, in fact, find more and more areas in which they could collaborate. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that because I think the problem is that the culture of higher education in the traditional institutions works against um, change. And so the, if you're a tenured professor and you're teaching uh, three courses and the, the, the president of the university su suggests that we teach some of them online, you'll say, well, no, thank you. And uh, uh, the... I mean, the, the problem is that universities are controlled by the faculty. When they have, have a vote, they can vote down any initiative that they want. And, of course, they're living in a, in a bubble of sorts with a, a lovely lifestyle, and they're resistant to change. Uh, what we find is that, the, the, that higher education or distance education is so unique and different that you basically have to start with younger people, work with them, and train them in how to do it that the older folk are good, that they come in with uh, superb content. But when it comes to getting up and checking your email <laughs> and responding to the student, marking up the, uh, the, the papers, uh, basically teaching, you know, uh, they, they, they don't have to do that. Most of them don't. So they're resistant to that. That's why I think that the free, if, if, if the for-profit industry can survive this attack, uh, that they will never really have any problem from competition from the bricks-and-mortar institutions. You, they will never get it right. They can't go online. It's not possible. Well, I mean, you don't have as many regulations. I mean, when I was in Mexico, I was amazed not too long ago, Mexico City, by all of these little uh, places, storefront places, where you could study English in some language or another. They certainly weren't accredited. Um, uh, to the extent that, uh, that uh, the American system is, is being uh, imposed on them or, or, or they admire it, they want to adopt our accrediting methods, which is the beginning of the end. I, I, oh, sorry. No. Oh. Uh, I, I think that you will see some collaboration, but I think it won't necessarily take the form that we'd expect. Um, I think where you're going to see the most collaboration is among the kind of parts of higher education that fail students the most. And those are 
their introductory and remedial courses, and their transfer function. And so I think that there's already some models of schools that are doing some interesting things in partnership with schools on some of these issues. Uh, for one, there's a group called Straighter Line that basically offers introductory courses for $99 a month. And they've partnered with a number of schools, both uh, public, nonprofit, and for-profit, to basically offer those courses at a, a lower cost and kind of help students get through. And their model is basically just focus on those very basic building block courses. And that's really a failure right now in all of higher education because those tend to be the courses that are a big source of failure for students. So if you take your intro course and fail it, you can't really progress. You can't fulfill your distribution requirements. That's a big impediment to graduation. In terms of transfer, uh, I had a very interesting meeting the other week with this group called Altius Education. And basically what they've done is they've partnered with a traditional college to do the first two years of an education. And they don't have any say over the academics. The traditional college does all the academics. But what they've done is done student support and transfer. They've worked out agreements with, I, I forget the number, I want to say 50 or 70 colleges, including George Mason, actually. And basically, they've said to students, if you do your coursework, if you get those two years done, you can transfer in as a junior. And that's a big step, because for a student to navigate kind of all the articulation requirements is a really big burden and really confusing. And then they've par paired that with adding tutoring support and academic coaches and things like that, where that's their value add. They're not trying to deal with content. They're really sort of dealing with those kind of exterior issues that can really trip students up. And so I think you'll see a lot of room for collaboration in that because it's in some ways less threatening to the colleges. I think that, as someone was mentioning, you know, colleges can be see a threat from a for-profit option if that takes away students or things like that. But if there's a way to work collaboratively to basically deal with functions that the traditional college either is less interested in doing or finds hard to do, like remediation or transfer, then there's a lot of room for work growth there. Uh, all the way in back, second section. Richard Ron Cato. I've been both a professor and a college administrator. And recently I had a reason to take a look at some of the accreditation requirements in conjunction with a uh, for-profit university. And I was noticing these things had, many of them had nothing to do with what I would view as education such things as community service. And it was a clear attempt by the state-funded or controlled monopolies to keep control. And we see this from the uh, time of medieval guilds or whatever else. And um, I'm, I'm wondering if we, getting back to your point, that if we had no support for higher education, financial support, how everybody would be priced out, uh, that seems to me contrary to every other industry. You would have all these universities with all this bricks and mortar and these faculties, and suddenly how would they, there was only a few who could survive at the per current prices or higher. They would have to drop their prices. We see that in every other industry. And uh, we have tremendous amount of waste in higher education. We're all aware of that. Um, so if you abolished financial support, I think the, as an economist, the conclusion would be prices would drop radically. We would have far more and better competition than we do today. And we have a system where 
federal financial aid particularly, has driven just increasing price escalation, saddling with students with loans they can't afford, both in the private and public. Um, if competition works in all other industries, why wouldn't it work in education? Well, it doesn't mean, that, as an economist, um, it doesn't mean I, I wouldn't uh, argue that prices might come down. I don't know how much. You know, there are sunk costs and um, sunk operating costs in large institutions. But it, even if they came down, that doesn't mean that you'd have comparable access. You know, we had a system like this for many, many years. We didn't provide any support for higher education in the 19th century and in the first, first part of the 20th century. And we had about 10% of Americans attending college. Um, those are the ones who could afford it. And um, without access to, if, if the price of a university falls from $40,000 a year to $25,000 a year, that doesn't mean that most 18-year-olds can afford $25,000 a year. So it does not follow that a lower cost would mean um, either comparable or greater access, or certainly doesn't follow that it would be more efficient access. I, I just want to put a little historical context on that, though, because that's critical. We can't go back, I think, to the 19th century and early 20th century and say because only 10% of people were attending college, it was because college was too expensive. It simply didn't make sense economically for most people to go to college. There weren't jobs out there that required anything like you'd learn in college. And I think it's interesting that, it, granted, enrollment, the percentage of the population that enrolled in college, when you're talking about the beginning of the 20th century or 19th century, was low. But it seemed to be growing pretty quickly from very small numbers, granted, before we had introduction of major federal aid. So people were consuming it, but I think you could make a pretty good argument that people are consuming education as it made sense in the context of their lives. And the last thing I'd say is, if we got rid of, say we got rid of all aid, if a low-income student demonstrated aptitude to master skills in college that led to them getting a job that they made a great deal of money, or even just uh, more than they otherwise would make, lenders would have a pretty big incentive to lend the money. Both could benefit. Granted, there's a collateral problem, I understand that, but still, you could use human capital contracts where a percentage of your income goes that way. There's not only a collateral problem, there's no credit history. I mean, no banker, no banker is going to lend money to a young person with no collateral, no credit history, no income um, on the proposition that they might be promising. That's not the way bankers operate. Um, the government enters this market because the government is the only entity that can absorb those risks. The private sector won't absorb those risks. I'm not sure that's accurate, but okay. <clears throat> uh, go with uh, one short question down in front and uh, leave it at that. I'm a Richard Schertz, president of Stratford University, a very small private university with three campuses in Virginia and one in New Delhi. We've also been in both China and India. And I think one of the advantages of education in America, because I've seen it in other countries, is accreditation. It's this peer review process, because when I go to India, it's just all run by the government. You don't know what the rules are. I go to China, 
It's run by the government. You don't know what the rules are. At least in America, you have peer accreditation, and people try to help you improve through that process. Now, there is kind of a language problem in the U.S. We've got the great divide between the nationals and the regionals. Now, the regionals have always focused on outcomes assessment, like can you think, can you read, can you write? And the national accreditors have focused on do the students complete and do they get a job? Now, I think the two, the two should come together. I think we should have more measures of critical thinking on the part of the nationals, and I think we need to have more accountability for retention and placement on the part of the regionals. Because I can tell you, I'm accredited by ACICS. If a community college were accredited by my institution, they would lose their accreditation. In Virginia, the completion rate of the community colleges is 14.2%. When you count transfers to the four-year institutions, it's 25%. Now they want to include transfers to the for-profit sector because I take all the dropouts from the community college system. And so we're, we're sitting here with a, with a completion rate of around 70%, 80%, and a placement rate of around 90%. And I'm 35% cash, and uh, I mean 65% cash and 35% Title IV. Part of my problem with the Title IV now, I don't simply raise my tuition when Title IV goes up. The students now want to have living expense money, and I can't stop them when I know they're just wasting it. They come in here, the parents want the money, the kids want the money, and I think the excess, the, the Title IV money has gone up too high, and so now I'm seeing more instances of people coming in to try to get back money from the Title IV program. Now, I think focusing only on defaults is also bad. I remember in the 80s we focused on defaults, and the net result was all the schools moved out of the inner city because that's where the high default rate was, and in a sense we redlined Title IV. Um, and so I think you can't only focus on defaults because when you are helping a, a, a sector which has a bigger problem, they're going to have naturally a higher default rate. I mean, we only have a 14% default rate, but we, we work on it, and we actually help the collection agencies collect the money. We call up because you realize when a guarantee agency declares a loan in default, they get to keep it money if they can collect it. They make more money on collecting defaulted loans than they make on loans that are repaid. So there's an incentive to force it into default so they can make more money. So in order to keep them from forcing it into default, we actually track it. We keep the default rate down. Okay, thank you. I, I think I'll uh, leave it there. I, I think we've raised more questions than we've answered, but uh, uh, at least all the panelists, I believe, agree that for-profits are not the fundamental problem, whether it's uh, overinvestment, underinvestment, or uh, any, any, any number of other things, uh, data collection. Um, for-profit education has been absolved. Uh, uh, but, but there are clearly many problems to solve in future forums. Thank you very much for coming, and thank you to the panelists. There's a uh, reception upstairs if you'd uh, like to linger and speak.